This evening we are continuing our study of Isaiah and we're moving into chapter 58 of Isaiah. And tonight my goal is to look at chapter 58 and 59 with you. Chapter 58 and 59. And one of the things that we see in chapter 58 especially is a concept that we've seen pop up here and there in Isaiah. And it is a recurring theme throughout many of the Old Testament prophets. And that is the theme of ritualism, where someone is just putting on a show of religiosity, basically, of going through the outward rituals of religion, but without genuine religion in the heart. And so Isaiah is going to address that issue in chapter 58. And then in chapter 59, he's going to address the the rebellion and the sin of the people, but then it's going to end with hope because it's going to show how the Lord is going to come and redeem even a wayward and rebellious people when they repent and when they turn to the Lord, the Lord will have mercy on them. And so we're going to look, look at these two chapters together tonight. First of all, in chapter 58, we see a rebuke from the prophet Isaiah of a ritualistic religious Israel. A, a ritualistic religious Israel. Isaiah is calling the people of his day to display true righteousness, not false righteousness. He wanted their lives to reflect the image of God. And so in chapter 58, Isaiah is going to address some specific issues in which they had a show of religion, but it wasn't genuine. And the first of those is in the first couple of verses, true versus false discipleship. True versus false discipleship. True discipleship involves learning and following. But the problem with the people of Israel is that they knew, they understood the word of God, but they didn't always follow it. And so a disciple is one who learns from the master, but also follows the master. One who only learns but does not apply that learning for life is not fully living out what true discipleship is all about. And so Isaiah is going to confront them on that. In verse number one, Isaiah is called to proclaim this message boldly and loudly to the people of God. It says, shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. You can see there's some parallelism like we've seen before where you have declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob. So people matches descendants of Jacob, meaning the same thing. And then their rebellion and their sins are mashed up together. Sometimes Hebrew writers will do this. They'll, they'll use synonyms and kind of repeat the same idea with different words for emphasis and to create parallel ideas. And so he is called to, to make this very clear, to, to sound the trumpet like as in the sound of an alarm with a, an approaching enemy, to make very clear that the people are in rebellion against the Lord. And here's the thing about their rebellion, at least in chapter 58, is it, it's couched in kind of uh, a, a religiosity, which makes it a little bit harder to see because they still went through the ritual motions of their faith, of religion. But Isaiah is going to call them out on it. 
In verse 2, he says, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. Notice that. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. See that as if? As if they were a nation that had not forsaken the covenant. They ask me for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come near them. So there's a show of wanting to draw near God. There's a show of calling out to God. There's a show of really wanting God's presence to come near. There's a show of seeking God. But here's the problem is that if God were to come near in their present condition, the way they are right now, it would not bode well for them because in God coming near to them would be revealed their, their fakeness, their hypocrisy. And so they're calling for something, but their heart's really not in it, in what they're seeking. So it's a, it seems like a true discipleship, but it's really a false discipleship. And then in verses 3 through 12, he focuses most of the time in the next several verses on this religious practice of fasting. And he shows how even in their fasting, which was a mark of spirituality or a mark of of devotion to the Lord, that even in that, it was false. It was fake. It was full of hypocrisy. And so he, he shows them in verses 3 through 12 the difference between true fasting and false fasting. In verse 3, he says, Why have we fasted, they say. Th- these are the words of the people, the words of the Israelite people. Why have we fasted? And you have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. So in verse three, we've got the words of the people and the words of Isaiah contrasted with each other. In the first part of the verse, we have the words of the people. Why have we fasted? In other words, what's the use of all this fasting if God's not going to listen to us? But then Isaiah turns it back around on them and says, yes, you may be fasting, but you're still doing what you want to do. So you're putting on an external show of fasting, but really from the heart, you're just still pursuing your own desires. And you're exploiting your workers. So what he's going to do in these next several verses is he's going to show the disconnect between appearing to be religious and actually loving your neighbor as yourself. And so they can appear to be religious by going through a fast, but they're mistreating their workers. They're not giving them their right wage or, or they're not treating them fairly. And Isaiah is basically saying, what's the point of fasting and going through this ritual if you're not going to live out the heart of the Ten Commandments, of loving your neighbor as yourself? And so he's, he's uh, showing them the, the, the hypocrisy of their religious fasting. One of the things that, that some of the writers on Isaiah pointed out is that in verse 3, there seems to be a little bit of a pagan mindset in their question in, at the beginning of verse 3. Why have we fasted and yet the Lord hasn't seen it? 
in that, there appears to be a little bit of a, a pagan understanding of what the purpose of fasting and prayer was. And in the pagan view of their relationship to their gods, you basically had to manipulate the gods into doing what you wanted them to do for you. And so you would fast, you would pray, you would offer sacrifices, you would cut yourself, you would offer child sacrifices, whatever it was, but it was always in an attempt to kind of coax the gods or manipulate the gods to give you what you wanted. And so it's kind of manipulative in that pagan sense. And, and Isaiah is sh- showing them that you, you can go through all these rituals and all these, jump through all these hoops to try to get God's attention, but he's not going to listen to you because you're not coming from a true heart of worship and of faith and obedience. And besides, that's not how God relates to his people anyway. He's not like a genie in a lamp that, you know, you jump through all these hoops and, and rub it so many times and then God gives you three wishes. That, that's more of a pagan view of God. And that seems to be the way they were approaching their fasting is if I do A, B, and C, then God has to listen to me and respond. And Isaiah is showing them that's not how God works with his people. And that's not true worship. When you're putting yourself at the, at the, the center of it, and you're doing these religious rituals so that God will do for you what you want, that's not true worship. And so they're, they're getting it all backwards. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So you're going through the motions, but you have no regard for one another. And there's an interesting play on words in Hebrew that sometimes it's hard to bring some of these things across into English when you're going from one language to another. But there's a play on words in which there are two words that sound very similar to one another. And it is uh, a word for, for hitting or striking and also the word for bread. So it's the idea of fasting from bread, but they're striking, hitting one another. And to kind of bring that over into English, I was thinking about what's a way you could do that play on words in English. It's almost like they're doing a food strike, but they're striking one another. They're, they're, they're abstaining from food in a fast, but they're mistreating one another. They're hitting each other and they're treating one another badly. That's the total opposite of love of neighbor, right? So they're going through the motions, but they're not showing any love. And God says, and you expect me to listen to you and listen to your prayers and your cries? Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? And here I think humble is kind of used in in like a sarcastic, ironic way in that they were externally humbling themselves by putting on the, the robes of fasting, of mourning, of sackcloth and ashes, but their hearts weren't really humble before God. So they're putting on a show of humility. But is that all this day is? God is asking them a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head externally, you know, physically, like a reed, and then for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? All those things in verse five seem to be focused on the external, right? So putting on a a certain robe of humility, bowing your head externally, sitting in sackcloth and ashes externally, you can do all of those 
physical, external things and your heart be completely far from God. And that's the point that Isaiah is trying to drive home here. Is not this, so here's a break now. Verses 3, 4, and 5 are basically a rebuke of the wrong kind of fasting, of a false kind of fasting. Now, in these questions, these rhetorical questions that Isaiah is about to ask, is he's presenting a true way of fasting, the, the right purpose. Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? That is your own kinsman, your own neighbor your fellow Jew. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. So Isaiah is showing them what real fasting is supposed to look like and what it's supposed to result in. And I don't think what Isaiah is saying here is that fasting equals doing justice to one another. Because fasting, all the way throughout Scripture, does mean refraining from food, refraining from drink. Um, But what Isaiah is doing here is he's showing that there's supposed to be a link between your religious ritual practice and how you treat your neighbor day after day. There's supposed to be a link in that. And so if you're spending your day sitting in sackcloth and ashes but your neighbor next door has no food? What's the point of a fasting day if you're doing that? So in other words, there should be kindness and love, brotherly kindness, love of neighbor that is related to and flows out of our religious practices. So it should be a real fast, a real prayer with a heart devoted to God and a heart that is that inclines toward kindness towards one's neighbor. This is how it's lived out. And then Isaiah says, then you can expect the Lord's blessings. Not necessarily because he's being manipulated into it or coaxed into it, but because God has already said, this is the kind of activity that I will bless. You can go back to Deuteronomy and read the covenant. And God says, if you follow my ways, then I will bless you. But if you don't follow my ways, then you will be cursed. And so Isaiah is just drawing on Deuteronomy here, saying, if you really love the Lord and love your neighbor and fulfill the purpose of the law, then then you can expect God's blessing. But he's not going to be manipulated by your external rituals. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. 
You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And verses 11 and 12 are specifically bringing in to the picture return from exile. When the people of Israel will leave under the decree of Cyrus the Persian and they will be able to come back home to Jerusalem and they literally will be able to repair the broken walls and rebuild the streets. And what God is saying in Isaiah 58 is what the Lord desires is not just a show, not just a going through the motions. And he doesn't just desire a people that is going to be returned geographically. He wants a people that are going to be returned spiritually. And the idea of turning or return is where the Hebrew word repent comes from. So he wants not just a people who turn around and go back geographically and walk back to Jerusalem. He wants a people who turn around and walk back to the Lord spiritually so that when they come back home, they're not just a rescued people, but they're a redeemed people transformed by the grace of God and living out the new covenant. And so this is the kind of people there to be true, truly worshiping, truly fasting, not just a, a fake show of it. And then in verses 13 and 14, he shows the difference between true and false Sabbath observance. And in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, Sabbath observance was one of the clearest marks that someone was in devotion to the Lord. That, that they were seeking to, to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and they were seeking to love their neighbor it was a very evident expression of their faith in the Lord. And that's why you see it pop up many times throughout the Old Testament, is the way the Israelite people treated the Sabbath is often a barometer of their, their faith before God. And so Isaiah addresses that, verse 13, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, and the Lord's holy day honorable. And if you honor it by not doing your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so if you combine all of the ideas of chapter 58, it is ritual Worship versus real worship. And I think that when we bring that forward into our time, even as New Testament Christians, there is so much that we can learn from that. Because just like the Old Testament people, we are tempted to go through the motions, aren't we? I mean, we're tempted to just, you know, put on the church clothes and come to the church building and sit in the church building and open our voice and we sing the words and we listen, but we can do that in kind of a ritualistic pattern and, and we can do it in an empty way. And especially if we go out then and when we leave these times of corporate worship, if we're mistreating one another, if we're deceiving one another, if we're not caring for people around us, that's not true worship. And so worship 
Biblically speaking, you can see it here in Isaiah 58 and other places too, biblical worship is not just something you do for an hour at a time on Sunday. Biblical worship is something that is lived out at all times. And and it's evident not only in fasts and prayers, but it's also evident in helping one another and in, in loving, treating one another with kindness. So that's an expression of real worship. And then in chapter 59, Isaiah is going to start out with a pretty stern rebuke of the sinfulness of Israel, but then at the end, going to show the gracious redemption of the Lord that awaits them. So redemption of a rebellious, but a repentant Israel. In verses 1 and 2, we see Israel's sinfulness described in kind of a generic way, kind of a broad way. And then we're going to see it more specifically spelled out as the chapter goes on. So in verses 1 and 2, kind of a a broad rebuke of Israel's sinfulness. Verse 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. In other words, the problem is not with the Lord. The problem is with their waywardness. The problem is with their rebellion. In verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So the issue is Israel was supposed to be in relationship to the Lord, but they kept wandering away. They kept going off their own path, violating the covenant, worshiping false gods, uh, treating one another with malice and hatred, living selfishly. And the Lord, being the holy God that he is, can't look at that in a, in a, uh, a way that just looks over it, doesn't, you know, can't, doesn't deal with it. The Lord's holiness demands that he deal with sin. And so there's a division. There's a, there's a wall there between God's people and the Lord because of their sin. But as verse 1 says, the Lord's arm is not too short. The Lord's arm is still strong to save. But he's going to do it by changing them. He's not going to redeem them and then leave them as they are. He's going to redeem them and transform them, change them. But there is that chasm, that wall that only God can bridge when we sin. So Israel sin described in a very generic way. Then Isaiah describes it more specifically in verses three through eight. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. So we could begin to list out all the different kinds of sins that Isaiah mentions here. Violence, hatred, deception, crude or evil things spoken with their words. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. And so you've got a violation of the ninth commandment of bearing false witness, of not seeking justice or fairness in the courts. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. So deception, and then also the idea of conceiving evil is the idea of planning it, 
of, of thinking about ways to do evil and creating those plans and actions. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. In other words, people are hurting as a result of their evil schemes. And, and so they're compared to creatures in nature that do harm, right? Poisonous snakes, spiders. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds and acts of violence are in their hands. Again, continuing that metaphor, what they're weaving is not helpful to anybody, not even to themselves. It's only damaging people. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes, acts of violence, mark their ways. If those words sound familiar, Paul quotes them in Romans chapter 3. When Paul is describing the sinfulness of the human race, of sinful depravity in all of its grotesqueness, he goes back to Isaiah and he quotes from this passage. Their feet are quick to sin. Not that just they slip into it, they run toward it. They run toward sin. They're swift to shed innocent blood. There's violence and harm that comes from their plans. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. It's almost like they don't have the capacity to do what is right or peaceful. They don't even know it. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So if you're associated with these people in any way, you're not going to know peace in your life either. And so there's sin. Description of specific sins, a lot of it violent, deceptive, scheming, and hurtful to individual people and destructive of the entire community of God. And there's consequences for that. There always is, right? There's always consequences for sin. And so verse 9 says, So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Isaiah is basically saying here, Here's why you are in the trouble that you're in. Because this is the kind of people you have been. And because this is the kind of people you have been, the Lord in his righteousness must judge that. There must be consequences for that sin. That is why you're in a time of darkness and, and misery right now. You're looking for light, but it's not there. There's consequences for what you have done. Like the blind, we grope along the wall feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. Some powerful imagery there, isn't it? Of someone like totally blind, crawling along the ground, trying to, to feel out where the walls are, where, where the doorway is. It's a very good uh, description of our depravity, isn't it? That we are spiritually blind in our natural condition, that's why Paul quotes from this passage in Romans 3. 
feet that are quick to shed blood, evil schemes, the way of peace they do not know. That really describes all of us in our natural condition. And we're like blind people groping around, stumbling around. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none, for deliverance, but it is far away. I think this speaks to the groaning of the human heart that even people who are in a depraved condition, without God, without Christ, there's still that longing for what is right. There's still a longing for their creator. There's still a longing for justice, for peace in the world. They just don't know how to find it. They don't know where it comes from because they're blind, groping about. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. That's the start, isn't it? That's the start of God's grace, the light of God's grace beginning to shine in to darkness, isn't it? When we begin to see the evil of what we've done. We begin as the spirit illuminates. And and that the theologians have spoken of that often in the work of the Holy Spirit is in his regenerating work is an illumination. It's a turning on the light of, of seeing things that we could not see before, of, of seeing our sin for what it is, of seeing our waywardness, and of seeing the, the only solution that there is in Christ. But the very beginning rays of light are acknowledging our iniquities. And that can only come, I believe, by a work of the Spirit of God to soften our hearts, to show us how sinful we are and to acknowledge that. That's the beginning of repentance. So we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. Interesting, isn't it, that Isaiah calls them out for specific sins and now they're acknowledging of those sins is also very specific. So they're acknowledging sin, but not just sin generically, but they're acknowledging what they have done. It's almost like Zacchaeus in when the Lord comes to Zacchaeus, the, the wee little man in the tree, and he says, come down Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. He goes to Zacchaeus's house and Zacchaeus is transformed by the grace of God He believes in Jesus and he repents of his sins. And the evidence of that repentance is he says, if I've stolen from anybody, I'm going to repay it. I'm going to give back fourfold. So Zacchaeus's repentance wasn't generic. It was specific. He acknowledged I've robbed people. And in demonstration of the grace of God, I'm going to give back what I've taken, what I've stolen. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. That's verse 15. Seems like a commentary on our culture right now. I mean, if you were just to quote a verse and say, what is our culture like right now? Isaiah 59, 15 seems to be a pretty good quote. Truth is nowhere to be found. 
it's hard to find good biblical moral truth in our culture today, an acknowledgement of that truth. And if you're a person in our culture who shuns evil and who attempts to walk the right path, then watch out because you're a prey for the violent animals that are hunting you down. If you take a stand for what is right and moral and biblical in our culture, our culture is turning the, the scope, the hunting scope, the crosshairs on you, and they will go after you. Especially if you're anybody who has any influence, any name recognition, athlete, uh, actor, singer, politician, whatever it is, if you're known by anybody and you try to take a stand for what is right, biblical morality, you are targeted by the enemy and you become prey. But into that darkness, the Lord promises redemption. And that's the amazing thing about this book of Isaiah is when you read through Isaiah, there's a lot in Isaiah that is heavy. There's a lot in Isaiah that's hard to read. There's a lot in Isaiah that describes sinfulness and rebellion and the consequences of that rebellion. But always in Isaiah, he shines the light of the grace of God, doesn't he? And so in passage after passage, we see sin and its consequences, but also in many, many of those passages, we see the hope of salvation. We see the hope of the Lord bringing deliverance. And we see it here too. The redemption of the Lord. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice, but he is going to do something about it. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. That is a beautiful description of the gospel of grace. It is a, it is a good Old Testament counterpart to Ephesians chapter 2. We were all dead in trespasses and sins. We were without hope in the world. But God made us alive in Christ. So in this situation of rebellion and darkness and of seeing no one standing up for justice, God says, I am going to save. And it's really a good picture of the gospel because we cannot save ourselves, can we? Left to ourselves, we are hopeless. But into that darkness, God says, I'm going to save. I'm going to rescue. His own arm achieved salvation. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Again, if that sounds familiar, also Paul, right? Ephesians chapter 6, the armor, the Christian armor of faith. He draws this language from Isaiah. Here it's describing God. In this context, it's describing God on his mission to save. God puts on, metaphorically, God puts on a breastplate of righteousness. He puts on the helmet of salvation. And God, metaphorically, as a warrior, goes into battle, spiritual battle, and saves his people. 
according to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. Very important, verse 18 is not talking about the people of Judah, the people of Israel. This part of the passage is on God's salvation of his people. So who is he going out to war with, with the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation? He's going out to war against the enemies of his people. And they are going to be defeated. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. That's a powerful imagery Have you ever seen, probably not in real life, but have you ever seen maybe on TV or in a movie, uh, a dam break? A dam or a reservoir holding back a river and it breaks and just the mighty rushing water. That's the image of God coming in to defeat his foes and to rescue his people. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Do you notice that? God's salvation, again, he is not just interested in a relocation of peoples from one piece of ground to another. From Babylon back to Jerusalem. What he desires and what he will do by his grace is he will transport a people, not only geographically, but he will transform them spiritually so that he will bring back a repentant people a people who acknowledge their sins. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. Most scholars, I I think, and I, I agree that this is a reference to the new covenant. So this covenant that the Lord says he is going to make with his people, specifically in relationship to the granting of his spirit, the result being that those who are indwelled by the spirit of God will speak the words of God and have his name on their lips. That is very closely aligned with the new covenant passage in Jeremiah 31 where God says, I'm going to put my spirit on them. I'm going to put my laws in their hearts. And no one's going to have to teach one one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is very similar language. I think this is the new covenant. And here's the thing about the new covenant is that it is an unfolding covenant. It is an unfolding covenant. It is a progressively unfolding covenant because there is right now in the world, not complete new covenant saturation, if you will. But one day in the kingdom of Christ, there will be. So it's kind of like the parables that Jesus told of, say, the parable of the mustard seed or the the parable of the leaven, in which it starts out small. The new covenant starts out small with a small group of people, followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, in the upper room, the spirit comes. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. 
the, that, those beneficiaries of the new covenant, they begin to grow, don't they? Like a leaven in a, in a loaf of bread. Like, like a little mustard seed that begins to grow and pretty soon fills the world. This, this new covenant is a progressively unfolding covenant so that one day what we read about in Jeremiah 31, what we read about here toward the end of Isaiah 59, it will be fully fulfilled when Christ returns. No more evil, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, and everyone will know the Lord and everyone will have his name on their lips and his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. That's what this is about. And, and so again, like Isaiah does many times, he kind of merges pictures together where we see a return from exile from Babylon to Jerusalem, but that picture kind of merges into the, the final picture of the last kingdom when everything is perfect and righteous forever and ever. But that's a hope. That's a hope for God's people. It was meant to be a hope to the people of Judah at that time. And that's why many of the New Testament writers quote this kind of language in the New Testament as well, which means it's also our hope, isn't it? It's also our hope. And so my encouragement to us is in the hope that we have to look forward to, let us be this kind of people that God calls us to be. That is people who are genuine disciples, genuinely worshiping him, genuinely honoring him, genuinely loving our neighbors, and not just people that put on a show, not just people that go through the motions, but let us be genuine disciples of the Lord repenting of our sins, acknowledging our sins, depending on the mercy and the, and the strong arm of the Lord and looking forward with hope to that final day of salvation. That's a great hope, isn't it? I, I love Isaiah. 700 years before Christ, and so that makes it 2,700 years away from us. And it, he's still much of this speaking very much to our hearts, isn't he, as God's people. And so I'm grateful for that hope.